0: These things can make you popular too, such as having a video on YouTube and you become a trending hit, or you have thousands of friends on Facebook, or you have a tweet audience that may be tens of millions like our president. The problem with all of these is you may be popular, but you don't know anybody. You really don't know a soul on any of these in terms of they they know something about you, you know nothing about them. So let's go back for a ways. Parents of youth, do you remember what it was like to be at your middle school or high school and you were dying to be a part of a certain group, to be accepted and to be brought in by them? You see, we each desire sort of a circle of friends that bring to us a sense of popularity. I want you to know your children still feel the same way. And if you want to talk about something that's relevant... Just talk to them not about do you like their friends or not, but what's the groups at your school? And what groups are you a part of? We also understand that sometimes that's used against us. So uh, we want to be a part of a certain group, but when someone of that certain group walks by by us in the hallway at school, uh, they switch to the other side of the hallway so they can avoid us. Or you're looking forward to a conversation face-to-face and as soon as you get to that person, the eyes roll and you realize they don't want to talk to me. It's funny, but that's what popularity can be and that's how important it can be to us. I want to take you back to an incident in my life, February of 63, that's 1963, and and I am playing for my junior high school, that ninth grade, Uh, In the city finals, there's six uh, junior highs in my city, and I'm playing in the city finals of basketball. I'm in my last semester before going on to high school, and in these finals, we have defeated two of the schools, and the third one is for the championship. We are behind by one point with less than a minute left. The gymnasium is filled filled not just for the students who have to be there, but with uh, sort of the city... Um, or the the board of education type uh, mucky mucks who like to go and to be seen at at situations like this. So they're standing all, there's parents all on the side and and the stands themselves, the grandstands, are full. So uh, with that full uh, uh, gymnasium and less than a minute to go and being one point behind, the coach calls a timeout, calls the team, of which I'm a point guard, Uh, Together, and he says, We have time, we're going to just plan for one last shot, and Jim, you're going to take it. I hadn't been asked to do that before. Our games really hadn't been that close where it matters. So we, we do the play that he sets up. I take the shot from 18 foot jump shot out, and I miss it. But I'm fouled. I'm fouled while I'm shooting. So I'm a 70% free throw shooter at that time. And I I figure, well, maybe I'll tie the game. Who knows? So I take the first shot and it is a swish. Take a long breath and realize there's a lot. There's a lot going on here like the rest of my life. Uh, (laughs) so I bounce the ball several times. I take that breath. I do everything that I remember the coach telling me. I do a perfect shot, but it hits the rim, bounces around and then goes in. We're up by a point. Wow, I figured. Okay, so, so, so now there's another timeout. The other team asked asks to make their play, how they can maybe make a play in less than 20 seconds. And uh, so they throw the ball in and I know, ex- for some reason I know exactly what the play is going to be. I intercept the pass and I just dribble around the court and I win the game. I'm sorry, my team won the game. <laughs> When, when that, when that buzzer goes off, the pom-pom girls are all over me. That's good. I mean, that's really, really good. But then my teammates, 11 of them, they come around me, they put me on their shoulders, and they walk me to the grandstand where we receive the trophy, and, and it's just a wonderful day. That popularity lasted for two days. <laughs> two days, I was a hero. On the third day, it was, you failed the math test again? What's the matter with you? In fact, let me just explain how, how, how easy it is to lose popularity. Well, I'll get to that in just a minute. I, I'm, I'm told that in, in Roman history that whenever there was a major victory by a general, there'd be a parade through the streets of Rome. And, and at that parade, it, there would be all these uh, these uh, features, almost like floats to the Rose Parade. They'd start with a with a winning army that you know covered all their bruises, and, and and they were marching in step. And that was followed by the prisons prisons of war, especially the, the you know the, the leading military figures that they had captured. That was followed by wagons and wagons of. Of, uh, of the loot that they had gathered, the spoils of war that that enriched Rome, and then finally the the commanding general, who was involved in winning that battle, comes last, and he, he's in a chariot, but he's not alone in the chariot. There's a paid whisperer behind him, and the whisperer is saying into his ears, "All glory is fading. All glory is fading." All glory is fading. In other words, do not let this get to your head. You might lose the next one. Well, let's talk about popularity. You know, when I think of being popular at my middle school for that one event, you also have to balance it out with the next two things I'm going to tell you. Just two months earlier, I lost an election for the senior class of my school. I lost there were only two candidates, I lost. And the position was safety monitor. That's right, safety monitor, I lost. (laughs) And just a few months later, I tried out for the high school basketball team, and he cut me. The coach cut me. I wanted to go to him and say, do you know who I am? (laughs) I am the soul." the sole hero of the city championship last February. Do you know who I am? Do you know who you cut? You see, I have this theory that we don't need whisperers behind me. If you're a commanding general, you don't need whisperers. You have people who talk to you to your face and you have life circumstances and they will tell you the same thing. All glory is fading all popularity eventually evaporates. We are in a series right now on the gospel of Mark. And we know how it ends. We know that Jesus has arrested, he's tried, he's beaten, he's condemned, he's crucified. And while he's being crucified, the national leaders walk by him and, and they scorn him. They, they call him a fraud. They say he's delusional. They dare him to come down from his cross if he really is the son of God. Yet we are looking this morning at about two years before that. We're looking at Jesus as he approaches the peak of his popularity. It will only grow and grow through the next several chapters. And it's important to know why it grows. Why is Jesus so popular? So if you have your Bibles, will you open with me to Mark chapter 3? And in Mark chapter 3, understand what we are looking at here is the popularity of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus whom we call God's Christ, God's Son. I'm beginning at verse 13. Jesus went up to a mountainside and called to... Oops, I'm going to start at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Popularity. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea and from the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. That's north, south, east, and west. That's where they're coming from. Because because of the crowd, uh, Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Those orders are for something we will deal with in later chapters. But understand that even the the demons knew who Jesus was. So as we study this, we understand that Jesus is one who is to be worshipped for eternity. That he is both the Lamb of God and he is forever king. These things come to him because of his nature, his deity, and his position in that deity. Therefore, he is worthy to receive honor. He he gets all the popularity heavenly that he deserves. And that is good Christology. But understand also when it comes down to being here on earth, his human popularity is an entirely different matter. He becomes popular among those people in his region. But but for why? Let me go back to verse 7. He withdrew with his disciples to the lake, And a large crowd followed him. What probably happened is that he takes his disciples, he gets in a boat, and he goes across the Sea of Galilee, and people walk around the lake, taking much longer, but they're going to keep up with him. So maybe they start from the city of Capernaum and walk north, around the top edge, so they can find Jesus in a more deserted place. He gets away because it's really hard to concentrate. It's really hard to focus on the mission he has because of all the people that are demanding time from him. And he's also being hounded by the religious leaders attempting to trap him in some fine point of heresy. So he does withdraw. He is on the other side, the less populated side, the the wildernessy side. But the crowd follows him watching the boat. And so he says... Uh, when, once he get there and, 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 the, and the crowd is around him, he, he tells uh, Peter, "Put a boat out back into the water, just, just a few yards." Now, why is Jesus so popular, and why does he put the boat out? Well, the boat's out there so that if people keep crowding him and push him into the water, uh, then he can hop in the boat. And they, you know, twenty yards out, most people can't swim, so they won't follow him that far. Why is Jesus so popular? He's a great communicator. He really is. His stories are funny. His stories always have a point. His stories keep people nodding. Yeah, that's right. The second thing about Jesus and why he's so popular is he's approachable. He's authentic. He will allow people to interrupt him. He will, he will take a, a question that's asked from the crowd, and he'll stop what he's doing, and he'll answer it. Why is Jesus so popular? Because he shows mercy to the needy. And everybody likes at least other people showing mercy to the needy. Why is Jesus so popular? He has charisma. He has confidence. So his answers come out quickly and correctly. He rarely says, I'll get back to you in a few days. Why do people like Jesus? Why is he so popular? He's smart without being conceited. He's probably good looking, handsome. At least he's in his early 30s. But most of all, why do people like Jesus? Because he displays the power of God like no one else displays the power of God. Not only does he allow the sick and the needy to approach him, but he heals them, and nobody else does that. Jesus is popular because people see that he can do for them what nobody else can do. Jesus is popular because they think He can do what nobody else can do. It's about them. So look at it this way. What can he do for you is the question that they're asking. And what can he do for you? Today, if Jesus was uh, booking Red Rocks, how many nights do you think that he would fill it? Or let's go on, let's try the Pepsi Center or Coors Field or Bronco Stadium. A whole week, could he fill it? Most likely he could. Because... There is this popularity of those who are the most needy. Say, if I get to Jesus, everything in my, you know, all of my circumstances will change. I will be who I want to be. Maybe you've heard of the actor Tyler Perry. He's, he's a he's he's an author. He's a playwright. He's he's a very good actor. He's director. He's producer. And he's a rich Christian African American. He plays Medea in all those movies, and he is Medea, dressed as a woman. And And in those movies, uh, he goes outrageous into the black experience, and so people are laughing all the time, especially the African Americans. I know Medea is what they're saying. Well, Tyler Perry is a Christian, but he says, I can no longer go to church. I cannot go to church without people approaching me and handing me little notes. In those notes, they are saying, you know, your influence could help me. In those notes, are saying, I have a script. Would you read it? In those notes, they're also saying, I have the world's best investment. It's only going to take you a couple hundred K. And we will make out like bandits. Tyler Perry doesn't go to church because he can't go to church to worship. When he goes to church, he is worshiped. That's what Jesus is facing. So he gets away. He gets away to escape. He gets away to hear God, not just to be in God's creation, but to speak to God and to hear God. And so it says, because of the crowd, he tells his disciples to have a small boat ready for him and to keep the people from crowding him into the water. So he's already going to be in the water. The boat is ready. And he's recorded as actually having done this once in, in uh, Luke chapter 5. So if Jesus was a, a a rock group, he would go on tour. If Jesus was a politician, he'd be holding rallies right now and people would be coming in large numbers. If Jesus was an actor, he would have uh, you know thousands of roles and he would choose the roles that would most increase his fame, that would keep him popular. But Jesus is God's son. And as God's son, what he is saying is, I am am getting alone to be able to understand and connect with my father once again so that we together might keep me on my mission, the reason why I'm here. It is to promote a heavenly strategy that would be different than the ones that I've just mentioned for people in high popularity. It is the strategy of his father in heaven. So what is that strategy? Well, it says this in verse 13 and 14. Let's go on to the next couple of verses. Great popularity, but a shift in strategy. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might teach, uh, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. In other words, do the work that he is currently doing. So the divine strategy is not Jesus promoting himself by being seen and visible. The divine strategy seems to be by by, by developing agents, by developing representatives. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I sometimes get uh, um, a little deceitful. That's the best word. I lie. No, I don't lie. I don't tell the whole truth. Occasionally, on a on a um, Ski lift, or uh, you know, in a social situation, they say, "What do you do?" And I say, "I'm, I'm, I'm a promoter." <laughs> oh, who have you handled? Uh, <laughs> you really want to hear that? Yeah, yeah. They're they're probably thinking Bono or something like that. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, well, let's go back to that taco bar, shall we? Uh, <clears throat> And and so that the conversation changes as soon as I do that. But not everybody follows, you know, gets hooked like that. I'm a promoter. I'm a promoter of Jesus Christ. And that's the strategy that God the Father reiterates to God the Son. They never were different. But there's intensity when they do it together. So to do this, he's out in the wilderness again. It says he calls among his many disciples. We think there was maybe about as many as 120 by this time we're following him. He calls them and they come to him. And now the strategy is revealed. Jesus will be represented by others than himself. Jesus' name, his popularity will swell because the disciples are going to be the ones sharing his greatness. And they'll be sharing his greatness just by relating the experiences they've had with him. Verse 14 tells us that he appoints 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, the Bible does not tell us why there's 12. Later in Luke, it tells us that there were also 72. It doesn't tell us why there's 72. Those of you who've done higher math know that 6 times 12 is 72. So it seems to fit half of 12 times 12. Okay, There's all sorts of possible reasons, the 12 tribes of Israel. But it doesn't say, why did he choose 12 and why did he choose these 12? There's just not an explanation. But we do know that they are chosen to represent Jesus in places with people, with people that would probably never be able to touch Jesus himself because Jesus has skin on and he's only allowed with his skin on to be at one place at a time. He's taken on the limits of humanity. So the divine strategy uh, involves the divine training. Now get this, those of you involved in training situations or things like this, the divine training only has one facet to it. That's it. One facet. Here it is. That they might be with him. The training will consist by a period of months or a year or two by being with Jesus so that Jesus can send them. That he might be with them. Now, as you look at the gospel, Jesus keeps the 12 disciples with him he's consistent in what the cause is supposed to be he keeps the disciples with him they are with him almost all the time except when he gets away to be alone to pray when he teaches they are with him when he enters home there's usually at least a few that go with him when he walks from place to place all 12 are what they're walking with him they don't have a manual that they learn from it is all on the job training and most of what they will teach They teach because Jesus taught them. And and how they pray for the sick, they pray for the sick the way that Jesus taught them. Through example, not through a a manual. And there's also more that Jesus has in mind. Jesus has in mind that not only will this be this objective copying of the way he does things, but there's going to be some subjective lessons that they'll be learning. Let me just give some of the suggest uh, what I what I call subjective lessons that you'll be learning as you were with Jesus as you follow him as you discover what he's like in Matthew Mark and Luke and John one of the things that you'll discover is this people come to see him and not you that can be tough nowhere is it recorded that a group of people arrives at this, you know, among the crowd where Jesus is teaching and out of the thousand, the, you know, out of the thousands who were there, the, you know, this little group comes forward and they say, Jesus, could you please introduce us to Thaddeus? We've been wanting to meet Thaddeus. That never happens. Thaddeus is chopped liver next to Jesus. So you have to be, you know, understanding that, you know, you may be with Jesus. And because you are a Christian, maybe you have new friends and new friends like you. But like those Roman generals, all glory is fading when you are saying you're going to be with Jesus. It's all fading. Next, for the rest of your lives, you'll be hearing three words continually. I know this because it's being said continually to the disciples as they are with him. The first two words are fear not. First two words that you know you'll be hearing again and again. And when Jesus walks on the water, they think he's a ghost, and he says, "Fear not." When Jesus, uh, when, when there's a storm and and, and uh, Jesus is in the boat with them and he stays asleep, you know the disciples come and shake him and say, "Do you not care that we're about ready to perish?" And you know he just stands up, "Don't be afraid." Where's your faith? And he says to the storm, "Hush, fear not." Fear not. You may tremble when you see my glory, but fear not. The final third word that you'll be hearing is go. You'll just be hearing go, 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 go. If you're not going to fear, then go. Once you've handled your fear, go. Go, be fishers of men. Go into all the world. Go into those towns that I direct you to, but go in pairs. Go with me to a lonely place. Uh, uh, go to this group of 5,000, and you go and feed them. Come and pray with me, or go and pray with me. And you can be assured that uh, what Jesus is trying to do is make you confidence in his presence So that he can send you on his mission. He wants you to be confident with his presence. That you are with him. That you fear not. So that he can send you into his mission. So therefore, you go to your neighbor. And you love on them. You just take the initiative. Love on your neighbor. You go to your work. Living and speaking for Jesus. Uh, You go back to your families. And you try to express to them why you have placed your trust in Jesus. But understand that you're going to be hearing from Jesus continually. Go, go, go. I like to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you like to say? Hmm. Let, me, um, <clears throat> let me share the one that I've been dwelling on all week. Because it is that incident... Where Jesus is actually out in the boat. The one that we are reading in Mark. It doesn't say that he actually ever got into the boat. But this is the one where he actually finds himself in the boat in Luke chapter 5. And it occurs around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We know this. We know what the setting is. Peter and his companions, probably his brother, and James and John had been fishing all night. They were mending their nets and getting them ready for the next day. They hadn't caught a thing. And if you're like me, when you go fishing, you don't catch a thing. You're tired and you're frustrated. So I guess they're frustrated. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, can you put your boat out you know, just a little bit and let me hop in on it? Now, I'll, I'll teach the people on the shore because they're pushing me into the water here. Uh, the needy are just pushing to get to me. And every, you know, it just gets closer and closer to shore. And uh, so he goes out. And he finishes his teaching sessions. It says, sitting on the boat there in Luke chapter 5. And then when it's over... As a thank you, I think, to, uh, to Peter, he says, Now, would you just put your boat out into deeper water and let your net down? i got a surprise for you. Peter does it, but he does it reluctantly. Well, if you say so. But I'd rather be taking a nap. If you say so. He does, and of course the catch, as you know, is so big that you know, it's going to tear the nets and they, they bring it in. If you are with Jesus, this is the third thing that you will hopefully be experiencing from the inside out. Peter looks at Jesus. He looks at the nets. He probably looks back at Jesus and he goes, Lord, go away from me. I am a sinful man. If you are with Jesus, you understand what it means for him to be holy and you not. If you are with Jesus, you understand that he is righteous and you will be constantly discovering that you're not all that much. It just comes with the territory. If you are with Jesus, you will have good Christology. You will know who he is. And your good Christology will begin to transform your anthropology. You see, you understand that Jesus knows where the fish are, and he's only a rabbi. Peter understood that he was a fisherman, and he didn't know where the fish were. Peter sees the fish, and rightfully so, he goes, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You understand everything about his holiness and your lack of it. When you are with Jesus, you will be glimpsing his glory continually and you will understand that in comparison to him, all human glory popularity is fading. And you will invite your popularity To fate also. What lessons are you currently now learning? What lessons now as you come to know Jesus better in your life, as you are following better? What lessons are transforming your anthropology, your psychology? What are you learning about yourself? What sort of self-awareness is coming to you as, as you realize the perfection of Jesus Christ whom you are following? These are to be discipleship lessons, discipleship moments in our lives that your Christology is transforming your anthropology. So we read that you know he he chooses 12. And let me just read those 12. I know that some of you memorized all of them, but maybe not in Mark, okay? Because the names, the people aren't different, but they had more than one name. So it says this. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. We agree on that. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And, and um, um, that to whom he gave the name Bonarges, which means Sons of Thunder. Andrew, Peter's brother. Now listen to these: Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Twelve names. One betrays him. Unfortunately, he remains famous and popular—not popular, but famous, infamous. Two die of old age, Philip and John, though they were persecuted greatly for their faith. The other nine are all martyrs. We have records of where they passed away. The other nine are all martyrs. They're martyrs for one reason. They continue to be promoters of Jesus Christ, of what they saw and what they experienced, and when they were asked to renounce their faith that Jesus is Lord, they could not. They can't do it. So finally we get to this one named Judas from, this, from the uh, village of Keriot. So Judas is Keriot. And we call him the traitor, the turncoat, the snitch. My Christology tells me that when Jesus chooses him, he already foresees, he already knows what Judas will become. That Judas will betray him for a bag of silver. Jesus knows this, but he still calls him. Jesus calls Judas because he has a trust that the pain that Jesus will suffer would be to his father's glory and honor. Anthropology tells us all glory is fading. Christology tells us that Jesus will reign forever and ever. Christology tells us <laughs> that uh, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christology tells us that his glory never fades. It only swells here on earth. How's your Christology and how's your anthropology doing as followers of Jesus? Are you learning those lessons Peter learns? That's something that we can pray about right now. Almighty God. What an insight. Great popularity for purely selfish reasons. Great glory because of his nature and who he is. He is divine. Therefore, we just proclaim this morning what an honor, what a challenge, what a disruptive alteration to the plans that we make. But we also say thank you that we get to be with him. And what a ride it is. Father, we do remember not everybody is following him. Not everybody has placed trust in Jesus as the one who willingly died on his cross so that their sins could be forgiven. That is a line of faith that must still be crossed. Lord, help them cross that line. We ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.